We have uh, been journeying through the book of Colossians, and uh, we've we've looked at it as a letter. It was written by Paul, but it's really the words of Jesus that are coming to this church, uh, teaching them all that he is, all that he's done, and what that means for them as believers. Uh, we are taking uh, these next several weeks, uh, except for the week that I'm gone, uh, to look at Jesus in particular, because when you go throughout all of Scripture, there's there's all of it's great. Okay, all of it's great. I think we'd all admit that scripture is amazing. There are certain passages which so condense uh, certain things into just kind of power packed punches of information. And in this instance, the power packed information is about Jesus. Uh, There's oftentimes so much confusion about who Jesus is, where he came from, what he did. And there shouldn't be that confusion because it's right there in the world word. And this is one of those passages we could look at and be like, if I need to know about Jesus, let me turn to first Colossians or Colossians chapter one. This chapter just is so overwhelmingly um, specific about who Jesus is, that if you're going to memorize a passage or know about Jesus, this would be the part to do it. And so if you have your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter one. And we're going to be in uh, verses verse 15, just one verse today. We're going to kind of work through these weeks, just looking at different things about Jesus. I'm calling this certain section of this book, Jesus 101. And you may already know those things. And if that's true, then this is no longer Jesus 101 for you. This is Jesus 201. And if you know more than that, it's 301 and 401, but it's the exact same things. The great thing about it is when you learn these things and then you learn it again, you just deepen in that understanding and become more awestruck by who Jesus is. The same way that when I saw my wife for the first time, I was awestruck. But day by day, as I see her more and more, it just grows. It's the same person. I'm just learning her more and more. The same with Jesus. As we go over this, uh, you may have learned it before, but it's so great. It's so great. And last time we saw how God for his believers, um, he's the one. Who qualified them? He removed them out of the dominion of darkness, put them into the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ, through redemption, the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. And now he's that's all escalating to tell us who Jesus is. So that's where we get to verse 15, one verse, but it'll still take us a half hour. But here we go. Says this. He this is Jesus. No mistake about it. When he says he he's not talking about you. He's not talking about me. He's not talking about Trumpy. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So I'm just going to put his name there. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's it. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. There's two phrases there, and I'm going to focus on them both. There's going to be a number one and number two. The number one is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Number two then is going to be He's the firstborn of all creation. So let's look at that first phrase. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What that means is that God is invisible. Jesus said to the woman at the well, God is spirit. In first John, it says no one has ever seen God. He, he, he's not seeable. And yet when God said, I want to make myself visible, I'm sending my son, I'm, I'm translating him into a man. And if you want to see God, you look at Jesus. Jesus told that to his disciples in John chapter 14. He says, if you have seen me, you've seen the father. If you want to see God, you see God in the flesh. You look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. And we have been talking for weeks about this stage, haven't we? Some of you have been laying the night 
dreaming of what this will look like. Well, maybe not. But you've been th- pondering, well, what, where is it going to come out to? And, and uh, how far is it going to go this way? And how many square feet are, what's the carpet going to look like? I mean, you've been trying to imagine, you've, you know, it's still kind of invisible. And we had an, uh, an architect builder come and draw plans. And so now there's actually been sketches drawn. But that's, you know, it's starting to kind of take shape in our minds what it'll look like, right? So far, it's been invisible. But soon there will come and there will be a manifestation. There will be an actual image, a a real stage. If I stepped like this, I would actually still be on the stage because it's going to be there. And God, who was invisible, he's not just a thought. He's an all powerful being, a person who's invisible. But when he said, I want to make it present, I want to make it manifest. I'm going to do that by putting myself, my son into flesh. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son what that doesn't mean is that jesus was created it does not mean that he was made it was that he was begotten he was put into the flesh so that we could look upon him and know god god was very careful about when and how he did this in the old testament when you go to uh, see about how he told them to worship one of the things that he made clear is you are not to make an image of me I don't want you to try to guess at what I look like. And, and, and in their worship, in the middle of their tent of worship, in their tabernacle, in their temple, they had this box that they would carry around with them. And it, it was right there in the middle of the temple then. And it was called the Ark of the Covenant. Inside it had the Ten Commandments and some a jar of manna and Aaron's staff. And, but that was the place where the, uh, the priest would go in and the very presence of God you know, would meet with the priest there. But this box had some significance about it. Now I'm going to ask, are there, can I get a few volunteers over here? You three guys, will you come help me? Who wants to be king? All right, Landon, I knew. So... Cultures in the Old Testament, when you had a king and they came and sat on the throne, now sit up like a king. Now he wiggles in there. He's getting, he's getting a little too comfortable in the king chair. He would sit on his throne, and a lot of times beside those thrones would be two creatures with wings. I don't know how you might want to make your wings. Make your wings. <laughs> yeah. So the throne of who had all the authority, he would be sitting there, but flanking his throne would be these winged creatures. In, in Egypt, it would be a, one kind of winged creature. And, you know, but, but generally, that's, that was a symbol of the one who was on the throne. Now, when, when God said, I want you to make this box, I want you to make the Ark of the Covenant, this is what he did. You can go sit down. It was this. In fact, there, on top, there was two cherubim who faced each other, and they took their wings... And they put them over the top and it overshadowed where the throne would be. But when God told them to make that throne and there was the cherubim, the winged creatures that were around that would signify there's a throne to be right in the middle. When you looked at the middle where there should be a throne with somebody sitting on the throne, what was there? Nothing. It was invisible. Thanks, cherubim. Thanks, guys. I I, I bring that up to illustrate that even when God was putting a very definitive uh, picture of something, You would look into that picture of the Ark of the Covenant and God was still invisible. Why? He was holding back what he would look like until he put Jesus into the womb of Mary. And he was born into it, put into a manger and he grew up as a man. And if you want to look what 
and see what God looked like, it was Jesus. He was the image of the invisible God. And so a lot of people say, well, I want to see God. Go look at Jesus. Even the Colossians here, Paul is saying, if you want to know who God is, if you want to get closer to him, if you want to have a a glimpse of his glory and his holiness and all that he is and all of his might, go look at Jesus. He is the image. There is nothing else that really casts uh, an image of God like Jesus because he is God. You have to go look at him. If you want to know love, how would you picture love? I mean, love is this vast emotion and feeling and commitment a lot of times, right? Love. And people might go and they might draw a heart, give it on a valentine as a symbol of love. Maybe, maybe it be a bouquet of roses and some of you men need to get after it and give your wife that symbol of love, right? This is just a free reminder. Amen. Pete, you're in trouble, sounds like. You know, we have these symbols of love, but how would you show the image of love. God is love. How did he want to demonstrate in a very uh, physical way his love? Well, in First John, it says this when he wanted to manifest, when he wanted to make it known, it says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. You could, you could feel it. You could touch it. You could see it. You could experience it. You could see the image of his love in this. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So when God said, I am love, how am I going to best show them so they, they can see my love? He sent his son, Jesus who was a Jewish man with a beard. Who would eat with people, talk with people, pray with people, touch people. But When it came to giving the full image of his love, he took that one son and he had him nailed onto a cross and suffered under his wrath instead of you. That's what propitiation means. He was a substitute sacrifice for you. And so when we look at that cross that we have from our Good Thursday service, It's a reminder of the manifestation, the image of God's love represented in Jesus Christ. He was fully God. That's what we say there. He was fully God. He's the image of the invisible God. And then Colossians tells us this. Not only is the image of the invisible God, but it says he's the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now that word can trip us up a bit because it has has the word first in it. And when we normally think of firstborns, we think of the one that came out the womb first. So in our family, um, the only one who's actually a firstborn is Elijah. I'm a middle child. Uh, Katie's a middle child. Jude and Naomi are not. The first. Elijah was the firstborn. And a lot of times in families and in back culturally in the scripture, the one who came out of the womb first, uh, that would be reckoned as the firstborn but the word actually doesn't only mean that in a time significance that that's the firstborn oftentimes somebody who was later in the family would be given the rights of the firstborn for instance do you remember jacob and esau 
Esau was born first, but God had said before they were born, or you know, it said to um, his mother, "Hey, the older is going to serve the younger." The younger ended up. Jacob went up as a deceiver, which is what his name means, went and stole the birthright. And he was the one who was reckoned then as having the blessing of the firstborn, even though he was not the firstborn. And so the word firstborn can often mean like the chief or the most important. And this says that Jesus, not because he was the first one who was ever born, that was Cain. He wasn't very good at a firstborn. He killed his brother. But Jesus was the firstborn of all creation. What it means, what it means by that is that he is the chief, that he is the most important of everything that's ever been. Because it says he's not just the firstborn of people. He's the firstborn of all creation. Not that he was created, but that he was manifested in the flesh and that he is the best. That's what it's saying is he is the best. It's hard for us to understand in the midst of the firstborn because we do want to look at it in a time sequence that he must have been the first one out of the womb. And for Mary, he was. But in all of humanity, it is important that he is the most important. That his firstborn status isn't according to time. Because certainly, even if we applied at the time, he told the Jews before Abraham was, I am. I'm God. That's what he was saying. That he has always existed and he will always exist. But among those in creation, he is also the firstborn. He is the chief. He is the chief. And I, I have a friend who, who had a, just a great illustration of this because I, I always want to look at things in a timing sequ- sequence. You know, I, and that's often how we tell our stories here in our culture from beginning to end. And so when I look at things, I always want to go that. And the firstborn thing kind of throws me off. My friend said, maybe look at it like this. Look at it like a parade. The parade's right there. And if you're on the side of the road, you're seeing the first float. And you're seeing the second float. And you're seeing the third float. And if you're right there in that time place, you're seeing it time-wise. But imagine if you were in the Goodyear blimp and you went right over the top. You would see the parade from beginning to end. You would see it all as one. That's how God views things. He's outside of time. He created time so that we could, at our place, along that parade route, see how things are going. But he's asking us in these moments to suddenly come up to his perspective and see, when you look from beginning to end of time and look at who is the chief, it's Jesus. It's not because he was at the beginning of the parade. It's because he owns the parade. When you look at a parade, the most important float is the one who has the grand marshal, right? And that grand marshal, even though there's already been a first float, second float, there's been a band, there's been people throwing batons, there's been clowns on carts. I mean, there's all kinds of craziness. And all that goes on. It doesn't matter when the grand marshal comes. He's always the grand marshal. He's the grand marshal of the whole parade from beginning to end, even though he came later. Jesus, even though in the flesh he came later, he's still the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the end. He is the firstborn of all creation. And so we say in these passages that not only is the image of the invisible God, that he is fully God. And not only is the firstborn of all creation having become a man, so he's fully man. We say that he's fully God and fully man in one person. And we shrug our shoulders and say, well, great, I guess. But these have immense Portions of significance to your life and my life. And these are the reasons why. Uh, I first want to go to 
Romans. This is chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, he's talking about people whom he has saved and he puts the Spirit of God in them. And he says this about them in chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of of his son. So remember we talked about image. This says that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. He looks like holiness. He looks like love. He looks like kindness and mercy and grace. He looks like everything we were supposed to be except we weren't supposed to be God. Do you remember when Adam was created in the beginning, Adam and Eve? It says that they were created in the image and in the likeness of God. And what did they do with that? Man, they flushed that down the toilet. They did not do a very good job of of living out the image of God. And so when we're born, we're constantly living into the image. Now that Adam and Eve have kind of set for us, we're always doing sin. We're always living towards death. And then Jesus came. He didn't sin. And he wasn't living in death. He was living in life. But then he died for you and for me. And then he called you out of your sin. He saved you. He put his spirit into you. And now what that verse says is to those who he's predestined, he foreknew. To be conformed to the image of his son, that means he is bringing you to look like Jesus. You're being made to look more holy. You're being made to look more kind, more full of love. Thinking the thoughts of Christ, making sure that he is everything. You are being conformed to the image of Christ, not to the image of Adam. So when we talk about doing the things that we're supposed to do, and I know it's easy to say, what are the rules that I'm supposed to do? You're not conforming to a list of rules. You're conforming to a person. You know, when you look at somebody who is like your hero, your mentor, you're like, Man, look how great they are. I just want to be more like them. And maybe there's areas of your life you strive to work like them or to think like them, to organize your life like them. I just want to do more like them. Make your hero Jesus. If he is everything to you, right now all of your motivation is to be being conformed to the image of Jesus. It's all him in Christ alone. Everything Jesus. And as he is the image of of the invisible God. He is now conforming us to his, his image to look like love. To look like Jesus. But it goes on in that verse, and I don't want to leave it there. It says, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, Jesus was the firstborn of all creation, but in a more specific way, because he died for you to those who call upon his name, he gives the right to become children of God. You are then adopted into the family and he is the firstborn over you who have called upon him. So you're his brothers and sisters. He's the firstborn of people who, if they were not in the family and brothers and sisters with Jesus, would be lost to hell. These things have immense importance because he's the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, so that he can save you and bring you into the family. These are hugely important things. But it goes further than that. I want to go back to 1 John chapter 4 and end end with this. In 1 John 4, I want to reread from verse 9. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the substitution for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What's that? mean? This means that God manifested and made himself known in the image of Jesus Christ. He died for us, saving us from our sins. But John says no one's ever seen God except for this. That he has so loved you. And saved you. That now you live for him by loving other people. And since no one has ever seen God, the opportunity that they have to see God is in you loving one another. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And as you go and you seek God and you find him in the image of Christ, and then you're becoming more like Christ in his image, that causes you to start loving other people. You know what happens? People who know you start to see Jesus. People who are interacting with you at work begin to feel Jesus. That doesn't happen if you don't love. If you're treating people like garbage all the time, they're not seeing God. If you're constantly backbiting people at church, they're not experiencing Jesus. Do you know how many people I've talked to who used to go to this church? They didn't stop going to this church because the food at the covered dish meal was bad. They stopped going to this church because they did not experience the love of God through people. In fact, they often experienced hurt. Some of that may have been from me. Now, I'm always going to preach the gospel and that's going to offend because it's the gospel. But if I have not loved and hurt people. I'm not showing them Jesus. We want to blame empty pews on the people who are not sitting in the pews. The blame for a lot of empty pews often is a result of the people who are still left in them. People have a hard time seeing Jesus through the church that's not loving one another. We've got to love one another. What that means is for us. We recognize someone's hurt us. In the love of Christ, we go work that out. In brotherly and sisterly love, we figure out, you know what, I've been forgiven. What does forgiveness mean in our relationship? I can forgive. You can forgive. You know what, Jesus doesn't sit up with God the Father and talk about you behind his back. And just pick on you like that. The same way that we shouldn't be doing that to one another and gossiping, right? God, when he sees us in need, doesn't just go around and drive away. But like the good Samaritan, a neighbor, he comes and he says, hey, can I help you? You see, we love because he first loved us. And God is invisible. Except for that, the body of Christ now be displaying Christ. And when it comes to the body of Christ, he is everything.
He is the firstborn. And this passage, as we keep going through, is not just about Jesus 101 so we can know who Jesus is on a test. So that when we live for him, it's everything. It's so that when we serve one another, it's everything for him. And so that as we go out into this community, we might be the ones going by people at McDonald's saying, hey, you know what? I want to tell you about Jesus. It's so that when we sit with our non-believing friends and they say, you know what? The Old Testament and the New Testament really messes me up. It just seems like people at church are just a bunch of rule abiding jerks. Sorry, I said it. What is this all about? And you get that opportunity in that moment not to just dine with that person. You get that opportunity to let them feed on the gospel of Jesus Christ because out of love for them, you pause for a moment to intentionally share Jesus and his love with somebody who's desperate and dying and still attached to the image of Adam. They desperately need Jesus and his love. And if we don't know him, how do we share him? If we're not showing the love of him, then who else would want to come? experience that love it's not really his love knowing jesus calls us into a deeper relationship not only with god but how we are then going to go approach humanity because god said this love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and the second commandment's like it love your neighbor as yourself he is the in- image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. If he is not lifted up on high in your heart this morning, if he does not sit on that throne flanked by cherubim in your heart, then today you come and submit and you say, Lord, show me what it means to have you be everything in my life. Every day is a constant submission again and again and again. And never tire of giving everything to Jesus. Because as we'll find in all the weeks going forward, he is everything. And if he's not your everything, you have nothing. Father, we come and we thank you because when we had nothing, we were sinners, we were evil, we were rebellious. Nothing could save us. You loved us. You sent your son Jesus in the flesh, the image of the invisible God. To in a more full way. Show us everything that you are. That we might know your love. That we might know your grace and your mercy. That we might know your discipline. That we might know uh, what it is to be in your presence. And Lord, we have experienced through your word just the blessing of knowing Jesus. And we have experienced in the fellowship of your body, the opportunity to experience your love, Lord. And we pray that we would then not come to you in a very flippant way. That we would understand that you're the grand marshal. You are the chief shepherd. You are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And you sit on the throne, as the scripture says, enthroned above the cherubim. Lord, that we would even be able to be in your presence is a miracle. So God, we thank you for saving us, for rescuing us, giving us the opportunity to be in your presence as brothers and sisters. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to conform us to the image of Christ, that we would continue to leave behind the world and leave behind temptation and sin. 
and the things that ensnare, but that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. If this Lord that we call Lord of Lords and King of Kings has so grabbed your heart this morning by the word of God and by his spirit, and he's shown you that maybe in your heart that you have not propped him up as everything. There's actually other things that maybe you're worshiping or you just love yourself more than anything. Um, That's something to come confess and say, Lord, I'm just a sinner. Um, This king demands that you don't hide anything from him. In fact, you can't. The reality is he demands that you sacrifice everything, even if it's something that you're hiding from yourself. And so this morning, if the Lord's been working on your heart, come and submit your heart to him. Say, Lord, you're the firstborn. I don't want to hide anything from you. Here's my sin. Here's my burden. Here's my cares. Would you show me your love? And he's going to. He's a good God and he loves you.